This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Grand Parenting Journey, Leading the Way. And the author is Mary Ellen Davis. And Mary Ellen joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mary Ellen. Hello, how are you? And as a grandparent, what are you called? Grandma. Grandma, okay. All right, well, you hear all kinds of different uh, (laughs) names, obviously, uh, when it comes to grandparents. Some of them are a bit strange. Most of them are pretty normal, and and, uh, we hear them everywhere. But that having someone call you grandma, what does that do to you? It makes me feel really proud to be a grandma. Yeah, that's... I love the way they their expectations of grandma expect you to be there, to be all things, to give them whatever they want when they need it. But they also expect you to just tell them when and what to do. Well, and that... I enjoy that. Well, that's a great observation. So your book, you call it a short manual that discusses the challenges and rewards of raising grandchildren. Now, what's the figure on how many how many Americans are raising grandchildren today? In my research, I, I realized that there, at, at 210, was about 2 million grandparents raising grandchildren. And I, that surprised me quite a bit, because I thought there'd be many fewer than that. So but, any, any, did it give reasons why? I mean, did it give a list of reasons why? Well, there are many reasons. Uh, some parents fall on hard times and cannot support the children as well as they'd like. Grandparents see a need to step in, and they do. There are parents themselves who want to get out of it because they feel that they can't handle the burden of being a parent, which they thought they could. So there are many reasons for young parents letting go of their children. But most times, young parents will stick with their children as long as they possibly can. So when they have to, they'll ask someone to take over. And I think a likely person that would be to take over would be grandparents, if at all possible, if their health allows it. Right. And even if their health uh, was questionable, most grandparents would step in because that's how much grandparents love their grandchildren. So they're always there, always there to help and even sacrifice for them. That's true. That's true. So your book describes, as you say, a multitude of questions, doubts, desires, sometimes fears of the ability to provide proper care and nurturing. So that I'm sure when a grandparent first learns that they may have to take on that responsibility for whatever reason, uh, that's obviously uh, uh, something to, it could be scary. It, it can be very scary. Because when I realized that I would be taking over my grandchildren, I had not retired from, from teaching yet, and they were 18 months and three years. So I was still going to work at the University of San Francisco, and my husband was home with the children. And I thought, I've already retired from San Francisco Unified School District. Now I'm working this other job because I like it so much, but I know now that I've got to stop and go home and take care of the children. At the same time, I wondered... Will my health hold up to do this? 
could I go back after 35 years and take care of babies? But then I did. You do what you have to do. We went back to taking care of the children, to the diapers, to the bottles, to the... We'd gotten rid of all the Christmas stuff, all the baby books, all, had to start all over again with everything at our old age. It was a challenge, but we did. And how old are your grandchildren now? One is now 12 and the other is 14. So you have seen uh, quite a, a growth in them and uh, been there all along the way. All along the way, right. We've gone back to preschool. Kindergarten, going swimming, little league, little baseball, soccer, the whole thing. Acting class, church, christening, everything all over again. But it's been a joy, an absolute joy. So how do you keep yourself so-called fit to handle the challenge? A lot of prayers. <laughs> a lot of prayers for one thing. And keeping yourself medically fit. Yeah, making sure you go to the doctor to check, get the checkups, making sure you eat well. And get rest when you can. And going to bed early to get the rest. Mm. That's one thing. Yeah, a, lot of- a lot of exercise. I go to the gym three times a week. I take the children to school, drop them off, and I drop back by the gym on the way home for about an hour. Well, that's where you stay. Yeah, that's what you have to do if you're going to meet the challenge because there's there's obviously uh, emotional challenges and mental challenges, but uh, a lot of physical challenges because you're on the go so much. Oh, on the go so much, and, and you get really tired. And, and I, you have to say to yourself, though, at some point there may be a friend, a husband, a next-door neighbor, or somebody who, who can take the kids for a little while because you really do need to get some me time. Mm-hmm. You really do. Mm-hmm. But you can keep going. Just like when you were a mom, you needed some me time. Right, right, right. But, but when you're older, you can evaluate that me time a little bit differently. You see the children differently. You handle them differently. You've had some experience. And it's quite different raising grandchildren than the raising children. You're more patient. I think I listen to them more carefully because I'm also not working anymore. I'm just staying home with them. And it's more enjoyable listening to them talk, and I teach them. Thank God I'm a teacher. I can do that. And now that they've become middle school, I'm really pleased that I was a teacher and a dean because I need it. So you, being a teacher, are very involved in their education to support their education, but I'm sure every grandparent needs to take that role to help them. Every grandparent needs to do that. And And grandparents who do not have some of the skills that they like. They can always keep in touch with the school, with the school counselor, with community services, and with friends. Mm-hmm. Parent groups are wonderful because that way you can share problems and work together and come out with some very good ideas of what to do and how to work with children. So obviously these children, your grandchildren, uh, they have a, a different relationship with you than they would have with, say, their mom, with you as their grandmother. How does that work? Is there? I mean, do they take on a, a new view of this too as they get a little older? Do they understand what's going on? And and uh, are you know is that good or is that more challenging? I I think they they understand because in their own 
language where I can explain to them what happened, why I have them in the first place. As they get older, they understand, and they can accept the fact that they weren't thrown away, that, that there was a time when they, there was somebody here to take them because mom and dad couldn't handle them right now. So they, they have a good feeling about why they're where they are with me. And what have, my husband and I have always done, even because my grandchildren, I'm in California, they're from Boise. We've always had them call mom, and we've driven them out there. We've flown them to Boise, so they've always seen them. And the, and, and the dad, who is my own son, lives here in California, so he sees them all the time. So they understand. But the little boy said to me one time, he says, you are my mother, and she's my mom. And I said, no, you got it backwards. She's your brother, and I'm grandma. So they understand what's going on. They're very close to us. They're not as close to the parents as they would be, of course, because they don't live with them. But they understand, and they, they understand they're loved and cared for. So they're happy children. Now, what about involving the grandchildren in decision-making? How do you how do, you do that? When there's something to, to be done, someplace to go, something to do, we sit down and we talk about it. This is what's coming up. This is what we're going to do. I want your feedback. I want to know what you think about it. And sometimes... They're, they're, depending on what we're talking about, their feedback is good. And sometimes it's like, you, you, Grandma, you know what to do, so you just do it. That kind of thing. But when it comes to decision-making where they are directly involved with other kids and things that very relate to them in their, quote-unquote, tween, preteen, and teen abilities, they want to, to be in and everything, so we allow that. They have to make decisions about vacation. They make decisions about, about, uh, when to do things, when not to do things in the house, for example. The, the extent to which we come home in the afternoon, do you play first or do you do homework first? What do you think is best? Well, if I play, then I can do homework before I go to bed. And my, my grandma's thing is, I'd like you to come home, have a snack, do homework, then play. So we, we make a decision about that, involve them in that, so that we all come to a conclusion what to do. And these are the kinds of things and way in which we make decisions. But we allow them to do that. And it, it works out. Obviously, there are times when you have to set limits that you have to uh, discipline. And it may even uh, hurt you to do it. For example, now, uh, right now, we'll have an eighth grader whose grades are not where grandma and grandpa feel they ought to be. So we're saying uh, you are grounded to this point. When, you, when your grades are better, you, you get your phone back. You are able to go out with your friends to the park, to, 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 to the mall, to walk with them to the mall. You do that. And there's no ifs or ands. There's no asking. That's, that's our decision. And then the thing is, you made the choice to do this, so you have to live with it. So that's, that's, that's the kind of responsibility to give the kids when they do something that they shouldn't be doing. And, of course, the best part of being a grandparent is to play and laugh with them. Oh, you have to do that. You have to play and laugh with them. And watch movies with them, funny movies, and go, and, you know, go to the park with them. And while, while I'm anxious, they told me I'm anxious. I said, yeah, I'm 76, so I'm anxious right there's still things that we have to do together. So we have to play, we talk, we do all these things. 
and we share. And to teach them, as you put it, to love themselves. Teach them to love themselves. The thing is, you've got to be good to yourself. You've got to put a high price on you because no one else is going to raise the price for you. So be good to yourself. Think highly of who you are and be the best that you can be always. Right now we're reading the seven habits of highly effective teens. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with that book, yes. Steve Covey's son wrote that. Right, yeah. Sean, right. Yes. We're reading that Sean, right now. Yeah, Sean Covey, right. That's a good book. Well, that's wonderful, and that's what you need to do. And and, and I almost think sometimes maybe grandparents can, can get kids to do things that maybe parents couldn't, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. I think you, you negotiate a little more with them. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, we right. we kind of uh, kind of know who we are and what role we play in their lives, and there there's a there is a natural respect for grandparents and a natural love for them. There was, you know, I mean, I'm always amazed of how when my grandkids see me, my my younger ones, my six year olds and four year olds, they just come running to me like they haven't seen me in years, you know, and I they just saw them last week. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah, you want. That's what makes grandparenting fun. Yeah, that is. Well, you're a great example, Mary Ellen Davis, of uh, obviously stepping in when you needed to step in for their sake, for your grandkids' sake. So the book, the grandparenting journey, leading the way, and again, the author and grandma, Mary Ellen Davis. Mary Ellen, tell us, how do we get your book? Uh, it could be ordered through Author House, uh, the, the website, and it's, Amazon has it. So many of the book, book companies are selling it. So I, I would love to share it with anybody who wants to read it. I think it's very informative. Very, very good. I'd really like to have back on it. <laughs> very, very good. Thank you so much, Mary Ellen, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you so much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today's book is titled, Creating an Extraordinary Relationship. Subtitled, The Art of Relationship Literacy. And our author is Paul Zohav. Paul, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Jay. And you are in the United States, correct? I am in Washington State. Washington State. The relationships you're referring to, are those corporate or are they one-on-one individual relationships you are referring to? Well, the answer is both because, you know, we work sometimes eight or more hours per day with people, and sometimes it's kind of like a marriage only without the privileges. Right. Um, the, the issues of communication uh, remain much the same, so the answer is really both. Uh, you have a background as a counselor, a chaplain, public speaker, a counselor in relationships, yeah. and so on. Why did you write this book? Well, I, I began way back, well, maybe 25 years ago, as a domestic violence counselor, and I listened to a lot of bad relationships month after month. And it seemed to me there must have been a better way. There's some way of preventing domestic abuse and violence. And I started listening, well, listening, you know, for that which, if present, would make the difference in their lives, the lives of their families, and anyone they were with. And from there it grew to include all relationships everywhere, all the time. How would you describe your book other than an instruction booklet? Is it something that's a workbook, or is it easy reading and uh, anecdotal in its content? It's easy to read. The first is divided into three sections. One is basic, five basic skills that I could teach you in literally five minutes apiece. But the challenge is that understanding how to communicate isn't the same as communicating. So... The first five or six chapters have things you could learn in maybe five minutes, ten minutes each, uh, maybe an hour and a half for all five chapters, um, but that will not give you the access to extraordinary relationships. It will take implementing them with someone else. In your counseling and in your experience, what is the ratio of individuals who just absolutely have to be the one that makes the final decision or getting it right? Well, most everybody likes to be right. Our brains are organs that are designed to preserve our lives and living and help us survive. And so it likes surety. It likes being right. It figures something out, how to press your foot on a brake pedal, and from then on you don't have to learn how to brake the brake pedal on your car. Your brain does it for you. It, it operates below the threshold of awareness. So on the whole, every one of us likes to be right. It feels safe to be right. It feels secure to be right. And you'd rather be free of anxiety. So the answer is probably almost everybody. Paul, did you have a specific audience that you thought would enjoy reading this book and sharing in the concepts you have assembled? Well, any relationship that is not going as well as people would like probably has a communication-based issue. Relationships arise in language, and the language we use and how we, what we say, how we say it, will determine the quality of our relationships. And it's clear that we're all born with ears to hear, but we don't necessarily know how to listen. And we're born with mouths with which to speak. But we don't really know necessarily how to say it, what to say, what not to say, and when not to say it. So there's a whole level of skill in communication that most people take for granted, but which there are a number of, shall we say, potholes along the way. Have you ever stepped into the middle of the male-female communication issue, and how do you resolve those differences of the thinking process that goes on between men and women? It's skill training, 
really, for instance, many people think interrupting is a bad idea. I'll just use that as an example. Well, the fact is that when you're with the other person, they think you're understanding, they believe you're listening, and but we've at the same time we've been trained not to interrupt. Interrupt as being impolite. What if we were to understand that if we've lost their train of thought, it's disrespecting to let them go on and on and on and on. What if we were to understand that when we've run out of time, we need to be somewhere else. We need not stay in the communication and tap our fingers and tap our toes and wait for the person to wind down long enough so we can escape out the door or make up an excuse like, hey, i got to go to the bathroom. Can we stop now? Interrupting, actually, in some respects, in many cases, can be polite rather than impolite. And that's some of the myths I'd like to dispense, in the, from, among other things, in this book. And do you give examples of the uh, correct way to interrupt someone? where they're not going to be offended. Yes, I, the very first skill, in the very first chapter, is called STAR, which is an acronym for Stop the, ang- Stop the Action and Refocus. And it's going to go something like, hold on a second, can, can we take a break? I think my stomach is louder than you are, and i got to take a meal. Or, hang on a second, I realize I didn't leave enough time to listen to everything you have to say, and we reschedule for later. Or, or you, something you just say, hang on a second. I'm not sure how what you said feels to me. Can we stop? And I can share with you how what you just said feels to me when I hear that. So it's going to be a stop phrase. And I'm then ending with a refocus phrase that stops the action and allows our brains to use work on our behalf, to respond rather than to react. And as a guy who's married and has been since I was three years old, it feels like, and I'm 102 now, that feel phrase is something that is a learned benefit you need to incorporate when you're communicating with a spouse or with someone else. Yeah. I mean, otherwise the person you get angry with is really yourself. You victimize yourself when you disrespect yourself and stay in a conversation longer than you want to. Those are some good uh, good words. And you also have coined the phrase, which may not be unique to you, but it's one that has stood out to me, reality and meality. Paul, share the difference between those two phrases. I think that's actually something I, I can take some claims I've invented. Most people, up until the age of relationship, are interested in what they want, what tastes good to them, the movies they want to see, the books they want to read, and they operate their lives in a me-based reality. However, when you get in a relationship with someone, your focus needs to shift from me-based choices to we-based choices. And the language we use needs to shift from the language of I and me and mine to we, us, and ours. For example, um, you'll hear people say, you never listen. And that's pretty hard to hear because we tend to want to defend ourselves and argue with their reality. Because to them, it occurs to them that we're not listening. What if we were to shift our language to say, the way in which we communicate isn't working for us. Can we look at that? You're no longer on the hot seat. You have a space of listening where actually you can actually get something done that makes a difference for the relationship. 
That's what I mean when I say you have to go from the language of I, me, and mine to the language of we, us, and ours. It's easier to hear, and it gives you a place that actually can get you an extraordinary relationship. Uh, so you would advise the, that approach rather than, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. That's a bad phrase to use. You'd say, well, hang on a second. I'm not <laughs> sure I understood what you just said. Can you repeat that? Yes. Thank you. And you also talk about the game of volleyball and not football. So it's a contact sport sometimes in communication, but that's not the way it should be conducted. Well, all too often when we hear a complaint or a concern, we make it mean it means something about ourselves. It's as if they, we caught a football and we grasp it to our chest and we run for the goal. But what if we were to play volleyball listening instead, which they, let, they lob a complaint or a concern or something they're not happy about over towards us, and we catch it on the tips of our fingers. And we say, oh, what I hear you say is, uh-uh-uh-uh, did I get that right? And then you flip it back over the net to them. And they can clarify, they can re-examine, they can you know, amplify what they just said, but you've not taken their complaint and made it yours. No longer have, you don't have to defend yourself or argue with their reality, because their reality is their reality, and arguing with it is a waste of time. And you'd also advise against spiking the ball, if you think you've won an argument. Well, what's important to understand is that when a concern or a complaint shows up, it's as if there's a net between you and them. Right. And most anything you say that doesn't deal with that will get caught in the net and bounce back and hit you in the head. How do you win an argument and, uh, and yet not be proud that you've won an argument? What is the verbiage you should be using when you're communicating with someone? Well, an argument, one would say that this kind of communication avoids most arguments. Right. Because an argument typically will show up after a complaint or a concern has not been dealt with. It's been kind of shoved under the rug of the relationship, and people keep on tripping over it. So the, the ideal goal is as soon as you feel something is going on, you say, hold on a second. Something's going on here for me. Can we stop and listen to that? And and at the same time, I'll say, to some arguments, um, when listening is not present, when hearing alone is present, then you may have to exit the room and come back when there's actually a space for discussion. Great advice. Chapter 15 deals with 10 ways to add love and bring fun into your relationship. Paul, what are some of the ideas you've shared in your book? Well, I, I, there's at least 10 different items. For instance, the cheapest, most inexpensive love-building, relationship-building date you'll ever have is reading aloud a book to each other, taking turns. You know, when we were children, we loved being read to. And we sat on our parents' laps, on the, on the edge of the bed, and we listened for hours and hours being read to. And then someday, one day it stopped, and we grew up. But rather than going out to a mediocre movie and uh, expensive pizza, why not take a book that actually makes a difference to both of you and sit down and read it aloud to each other and then talk about what it brings up? Two of my favorite books are The Five Love Languages and there's another one by Deborah Tannen called You Just Don't Understand, Men and Women in Conversation. Um, it's easy in small pieces and you'll learn 
some hours of enjoyment that will leave you closer than ever before, far more than if you've gone out to a mediocre movie and a mediocre pizza and spent money. You've advised such reconnection ideas as Homecoming Night and uh, yeah, Reading Aloud. The, the idea of surprise and play. Um, one of, homecoming Night is a version, of, a version of the mystery date. Mystery date is that on Monday, one spouse or the other says, on Friday, this is how you dress, and this is when you get ready, and we're going out. And then all week long, but you don't tell them what, what it is. Um, and so all week, you're anticipating a date. And all you know as a partner is how to dress and when to be ready. The, um, the homecoming night is something you would do in the day. When is your turn? When you walk out the door in the morning, going off to work, to say, tonight's homecoming night. And all day, you and your spouse can anticipate something special when the partner comes home at the end of the day. And it could be taking a walk, going to a wine bar. It could be dressing in funky clothes. Anything that brings play, fun, and surprise and breaks up the norm of the marriage. I love that idea. It's great. Uh, what is quarter in the jar? Well, that's that, that's a, another one that's kind of fun to believe. Sometimes, some, it started one time when said, someone said, well, the way we reduced cussing in our family was that every time a person cussed, they took a quarter out of a jar full of quarters, and whatever was left in the jar at the end of the week, we could spend on ourselves. Mm. I, and these days, in the days of inflation, shall we say, maybe it should be a dollar in the jar. But right. you know, for, the, for the sake of argument, you know, you can use quarter-in-the-jar games to encourage or discourage behaviors. For instance, you could say, every time you tell me you love me, we'll put a dollar in the jar. Wow. And so at the end of the week, you get to say how much you spend on your date that night. That's fantastic. A great idea. I like that. I, we, uh, in a business situation, we had a, a small company with about 10 employees. Uh, nine of us were what I would call uh, clean speakers. We didn't use bad language in the business environment. And uh, if someone by accident or on purpose used a bad word that we thought was inappropriate, they put a dollar in the jar. And uh, it was interesting how money accumulated. And sometimes us clean speakers would go to the guy who wasn't, hand him a dollar and say, let her rip. It's our way of letting off steam. Particularly good for teenagers and children. Right. We're a little bit more concrete thinkers than adults are. So if you've got a 10-year-old and they're still cussing or doing some other behavior you don't particularly appreciate, you put 20 bucks in the jar of tokens. It could be poker chips. doesn't mm -hmm. matter what symbol it is. And they'll know that whenever they did what they didn't, what they, what they were not supposed to do, something comes out. And maybe you can even tie to their allowance. There's always you can play quarter in the jar games. Very creative ideas. How would you introduce this book to somebody in a couple of sentences? This book will provide you with the skills and insights you need to have an extraordinary relationship with anybody at home, with teenagers, with friends, or at work. Straightforward and to the point. I like that. And what were the challenges in writing this? This is your first actual book. You've written other articles and other ideas, and uh, they're in print. But this is your first full book. Were there challenges in getting it to print? Well, I, it started out, half of it started out as a number of blogs I had written. And then I saw after a while there was a critical mass of ideas, and I started sorting them for 
content and structure. And that's where the three sections of the book came from. So I realized some of them were teaching skills, like stop the action refocus. Some were talking about best practices in a marriage. Um, and then some were talking about, well, insights, like the styles of how men and women use English, but they use it for different reasons. And that needs to be brought to awareness in a couple in a marriage. Um, men and women both speak English, but they don't, their agendas are very different. And that's one of the articles in the Insights chapter. You also have some, I would say, uh, parts of the book that are workbook-related or focused. They're not difficult to do, but some ideas, questions, and answers. Is that also part of your way of reinforcing your concepts to the reader? Well, for example, in wherever I could put a practice page, as I did, this book may morph into a more workbook structure. But, for instance, the skills of appreciation and acknowledgement. I, I, one of the practices I encourage couples to do is to take time each week, at least once, and ask your partner, what would you like to be acknowledged for today, this week? What is something of note, maybe a little extra effort you put in, extra thought that deserves acknowledgement, and then you wait for them to answer. It may take a while, because we don't usually think about ourselves in terms of acknowledgement. And then when they say, I want to be acknowledged for whatever it is, you then acknowledge them, and then you take turns and they ask you the same question. One of the chapters in the book distinguishes what exactly makes for a good acknowledgement, and there's some practice pages at the end of that chapter. Although it's only 148 pages, it is full of great ideas and great methods for improving our relationship and communication. The title of the book is Creating an Extraordinary Relationship, and our author, Paul Zohoff. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? You can, there, it's available in various places on the web. You can find it at Amazon and Scribner's and Barnes and & Noble's. Um, but if you go to Author House, I get twice as much royalties. So I would say go to the Author House website and look for creating an extraordinary relationship there. In the near future, there will be a website for the book itself somewhere and in the next few weeks. Yes, and Paul, are you still doing, you mentioned blogs, are you still active in, in uh, writing articles for online consumption? It kind of took a nosedive when I got into creating the book. I expect it to start up again, because I keep on listening and observing. So that, if what would have, if present, would make a difference in the lives of the people around me. And I'm also would like to say, I'd like to see relationships become the fourth R in our school system. Not just reading, writing, arithmetic, but relationships. Imagine the lives of our children and grandchildren. If they grew up learning the skills and insights of extraordinary communication, that's where the real payoff is, the next generation. I agree. And best of luck getting that done. I hope that maybe an educator will get a hold of your book and incorporate some of the ideas in their teaching. The book title again is Creating an Extraordinary Relationship, subtitled The Art of Relationship Literacy. And our guest has been author Paul Zohov. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. 
After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Philosophy, A Path with Heart. And the author is Dr. Alan Johnson. And Alan joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Alan. Well, good morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, this is going to stir a lot of different feelings and thoughts because uh, this book really is about living life and dealing with all the issues and questions that come along throughout uh, anybody's life. But you're taking a philosophical point of view, which you say, you know, philosophy is mysteriously seductive, exciting, and nourishing, at least for you. To many of us, it's very confusing. <laughs> but <laughs> intellectual, spiritual, uh, uh, soulful gyroscope in your life, philosophy. So before we get into why you think this way and uh, believe this, tell us a little bit about your background, Alan, your extensive background, and uh, why you wrote the book. Well, the book uh, sort of wrote itself in a very short period of time, and uh, there are a couple of jokes that I make on myself in the book, and they they say something about uh my orientation to philosophy, and that is, I joke with, about myself saying that when I left high school, I wasn't bright enough to know that I wanted to be an alchemist, and I suppose if I had told anyone that, they might have uh, referred me to a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose engineering as my way to try to understand matter and uh, a person's uh, relation to it in a very, uh, in a very deep way. And, of course, uh, what I found in uh, pursuing a degree in electrical engineering was that I was nowhere close to being an alchemist. And so, uh, because of a lot of other factors, I thought, well, maybe what I need to look into is uh, seminary and uh, possibly being a counselor in a large church or working as a chaplain in a hospital because some things had happened in my life that uh, uh, kept me spiritually uh, alive. And uh, I started seminary at uh, Union Seminary in uh, New York City, Union Theological Seminary. And uh, I then <laughs> came upon the second joke in my life, and that was uh, probably what I really wanted to be was a shaman, and uh, <laughs> I'd studied <laughs> for the ministry wasn't going to get me there. <laughs> so it's these kind of, of issues that I, I keep, uh, running across in my life, and that is, what is it that really uh, is nourishing and satisfying my heart as well as my mind? And so I set off on certain paths that uh, society has uh, laid out in front of us, 
thinking that on one of these paths I will uh, find what it is I'm looking for, and I don't find it, and so I keep uh, going down another path until I finally find something that uh, begins to satisfy my mind and my heart. And I discovered that while I was at seminary uh, through uh, study at the uh, Jung Institute, that's J-U-N-G, Jung Institute, uh, with a a wonderful old uh, therapist by the name of Whitmont. And uh, after uh, attending his lectures, I suddenly said, well, before I finish my doctorate, I am going to study at the Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland. And that's where I did, and that's where I began to uh, come to terms with a career that I thought would be satisfying, and that was as a therapist. And so I wound up completing a doctorate in counseling psychology, and then wound up working for 33 years in the Department of Family Medicine, trying to help physicians begin to understand their patients uh, as something more than just a package of, uh, of organs that uh, may or may not be diseased. So maybe enough said. Maybe you should say something. Well, point. very well said. And your book is autobiographical... Uh, to uh, to a large degree, but why did you start when you were 12 or 13 years old? Well, uh, yeah, I start there because I think that's where I really found a, uh, a fellow soulmate, a philosophical soulmate, and that was in the uh, character of Anne Frank. I started reading her book at about the age that she uh, started writing, and I was so impressed with her integrity. And after the first few uh, entries in her diary, she begins to address it as Kitty, as though it's a person. And she promises to that diary to be honest about herself and what's going on in her life. And I think that integrity... uh, really captured something that was going on inside of me, and that is I was reflecting on what was happening around me. I was able to socially perform, you might say, but there was a lot going on inside of me, Uh, a lot of thought and a lot of questions. And when I read her, uh, it was as though we were on the same page. And it was interesting in writing the book, I went back and read her diary again. And uh, the reason I did that was because at the time when I finished reading it, I, then I started reading Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, the French existentialist. And before I wrote my book, I looked back on this and I thought, what a jump to, to read Anne Frank, and then suddenly I'm reading you know, the French existentialist and, and, and Camus. And uh, so... I didn't appreciate how existential she was in her orientation until I went back uh, and and read her diary again. And so that, to me, was the uh, sort of uh, uh, marker of uh, when I began to see myself philosophically. And, of course, then what happened after I finished that engineering degree, I, I did a master's degree in philosophy, and that was when I really knew that I was home. But I realized that I couldn't uh, do philosophy in the uh, world just out of an academic context. 
And in fact, I would say, uh, this is kind of a side, but I think this is an important thing that comes to me in, in talking with you today, thinking about my book and thinking about philosophy. I think academic philosophy has done the same bloody thing to real philosophy that the Church did to early Christianity. And that is that there are all kinds of quote-unquote philosophical denominations, and there are all sorts of ways that one is or isn't a, a true philosopher. And I think that's uh, hogwash. <laughs> I mm. think uh, philosophy has a lot more to do with how, I want to say, the average person begins to make sense of his or her life in a way that really keeps them alive and, and centered and uh, affirmative. And uh, I'm not certain that academic philosophy necessarily does that. It it might be a real impediment in a lot of ways. <laughs> you, you would describe yourself as a spiritual person. Uh, you're, you are a churchgoer, but you're trying to get people, the reader in this case, to... You're, you're raising questions with the readers because you're trying to get them to discover uh, in their own particular way to reflect on their immediate life and, and you know, the, the life around them. I mean, wh- how, how do these questions do that? What kinds of questions are you raising with them? And, and what is the, the benefit, as you see it, in this kind of a uh, uh, strategy? Hmm. Well, uh, as you started off with your statement, I was going to say I thought you were right on target. Uh, I think you'd identified what I was doing. Uh, I think the, uh, let me use the terms that, that uh, Paul Pillick, a theologian, used, because I, I jokingly refer to him as a, uh, a theologian or a, uh, well, yeah, a theological uh, a psychologist. And he would talk about a person's ultimate concern. And so I, if everyone would begin to look at their ultimate concern and see if they can uh, take that parcel apart and see what's really in it, I think uh, they would uh, begin to maybe look at life very differently. And if in taking that parcel apart, they also are willing to honor their feelings, then I, I think uh, they may be on their way to finding a path with heart. So I think uh, too often people uh, get involved in deciding what they need to do, and they go off and need <laughs> meet that need, but... Uh, they miss satisfying uh, another part of themselves. They leave a part of themselves behind. And consequently, uh, uh, I want to say, are not quite in touch or in harmony with themselves. And this leads to all kinds of problems. And of course, I see those as problems, uh, those problems as a psychologist. I think as a culture right now, a, a great example of where we are is that a lot of people right now say, you know, the environment really is a problem, but but if you say, well, what are the problems that we really need to be focused on? Well, they talk about jobs and economy and things like that, but they're really missing, <laughs> I want to say, the context in which they have to live 
and are going to be forced to understand that they've been violating that environment and are going to make it increasingly difficult to live because, in the environment. Because your book, as you point out, is about bridging a person's inner world to the outer world in a way that makes logical and spiritual sense. And it's right like, on target, yeah. I'm yeah. hearing you talking about that right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah exactly, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's a huge issue for all of us. Uh, I, I know, uh, for example, my wife and I have just now put 18 solar uh, cells on the uh, roof of our home. And uh, we're going to see how much we can do to reduce our electric bill. And before we did that, we put on a couple of uh, large uh, uh, water solar panels to uh, begin to heat uh, water and reduce our electric bill by heating water. So we're trying to find in in small steps ways to begin to, uh, I want to say, use the energy that's available to us in a way that's more friendly to the planet and uh, and helpful hopefully if uh, if more of us can do that in small ways uh, we will as the metaphor goes now we will reduce our carbon footprint so you would describe your book uh, as a vehicle to really search the soul it's spiritually far-reaching of it's really, as you put it, unlike any other book. Yeah, I think so, because I, I do try to cover the waterfront. Uh, I think there's probably no issue that's uh, too small or, or too great to be <laughs> excluded in, in what I'm thinking about. There's a, a quote that I uh, begin one of the chapters with that I'd like to read. It's by William James, who is a fairly significant figure in our uh, philosophical and psychological American history. He says, the philosophy which is so important in each of us is not a technical matter. It is our more or less dumb sense of what life honestly and deeply means. It is only partly got from books. It is our individual way of just seeing and feeling the total push and pressure of the cosmos. And that, to me, uh, gets at at the kind of philosophy I'm interested in helping people uh, explore. Now, you've been taking Taekwondo for, uh, what, 35 years. You've been practicing that and teaching it. Yes, and still do. (laughs) Now, is that uh, that, uh, part of your life, is that influencing your philosophy as well, and in, in influencing your book? Uh, yes, it, and I want to say in a almost mysterious way, and that is, I look at my uh, my practice and teaching of Taekwondo as a kind of meditation. And not to make that sound mysterious or anything, I can say it in a different way, and that is that for an hour and a half when I work out, I'm not thinking about anything else. And so what I discovered when I started Taekwondo was that I, I, I started it pretty late in life when I was about 40. And uh, I looked on it, as I, I reflect with other friends, uh, very much like an adolescent thinking, wow, I'm getting to do Taekwondo. <laughs> 
And about six months after doing it, I suddenly realized that something very profound and very subtle was happening, and that is when I was doing it, I was not thinking about anything else. And I was married. I had three children. I had a very uh, demanding and uh, a very satisfying uh, job. And uh, But that, that became very important, and I suddenly realized that that was a kind of anchor for me. Mm. And that when I was doing Taekwondo, that's all I was doing. And so it became... I want to say, a real stabilizing uh, influence in my life, and particularly at times that were very, very stressful. Uh, I think about the time after 25 years of marriage that I decided to separate from my wife, and uh, I realized what a struggle I went through for several years making that decision. And, uh, and all through that, I kept working out and... Uh, and that really uh, helped me uh, stay grounded. We've been listening to Dr. Alan Johnson. He is the author of his book, Philosophy, A Path with Heart. Alan, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, I suppose uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, I, I don't have a, uh, a web page or anything like that. And uh, I suppose if you saw me in person, I'd be glad to sell you a copy since I have have some uh, extras that I purchased when I uh, uh, decided to contract with Author House. Well, very good. Yes, anybody can order it from just about anywhere online or walk into a bookstore and order Philosophy, A Path with Heart. Well, Alan Johnson, we appreciate you being with us on Author Talk. I'm glad I could be. And thanks for the interview, Steve.